Twisted Sisters Crime will contain mature content, graphic descriptions, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast may upset trauma survivors. Hello, everyone. Who's ready to head over to Mickey Mouse's state? Okay, California does not belong to Disneyland. In fact, there is a murder museum in Hollywood that I think we should go to. Well, I've already booked the flight, boo-boo. Anyway... Before we begin, do you want to give us some statistics? Sure. So, in 2019, they had 174, 331,000 violent crimes. 1,690 of these were murders. 14,799 were rapes. 52,301 robberies. 105,541 assaults. It's kind of crazy because if you do the math, California was responsible for a little over 10% of all the murders in the United States that year. So maybe we should just postpone our little visit and stay here. Well, let's just see what kind of things are happening there. So I'm going to jump into my story. This is the filthy truth about Dirty John Meehan. Few people actually know about Dirty John's real truth, lies, and heinous crimes. So John Michael Meehan was born on February 3rd, 1959, and it seemed crime and evil was like already a part of his childhood. He was a part of the perfect American family with two sons and two daughters. John's father ran the Diamond Will Casino in San Jose. That was where John and his siblings would clean for money and help around the casino. So from the very beginning, John was surrounded by crime and deceit as his father himself carried out like a ton of illegal activities, filing bogus lawsuits and pulling off insurance scams. So growing up, John learned all of these illicit skills and honed them like to perfection during his life. The fact that John was so brilliant also helped him. In school, he was a straight-A student. He was also quite active in sports and, like, gathered women's attention around him. He was very, like, charismatic nature, and these traits gave him all the tools that he needed to learn how to manipulate these people. Ew. John's father also often boasted of their supposed mafia connections. And therefore, John was also had mafia mentality kind of ingrained into him since an early age. According to John's sister, things started to go very wrong in John's life when their parents got divorced. The rough divorce had a significant impact on John, who, after graduating high school, spent the rest of his days as an orderly in a hospital and dealing drugs. Cool. Doing great, buddy. I know. He also he even got into Santa Clara University, but his illegal activities always got him into trouble. He was used to like running scams and side hustles, manipulating women into doing what he had wanted. He would go to any lengths to get exactly what he wanted. For instance, once he picked up some glass, put it in his taco, and proceeded to bite into it so that he could sue the company. Are you kidding? Mm-mm. Was he... Ah! Yeah. Similarly, he would jump in front of cars to sue the drivers for hitting him, even if that meant he had to sustain injuries 
He would jump in front of cars! Guy! Just so that he could get money out of it. You know, that's why in Russia, that's why they have dash cams everywhere. If you look, they have dash cams on all their cars because people constantly try to do insurance scams by either, like, bikers will, like, hit into the cars and act like the car hit them, or cars will, like, back up into other cars to be like, oh, you rear-ended me, like, all the time. In the 1980s, John was caught for drug dealing and turned his best friend, like, in as a part of his plea bargain. Oh, my. Rough. Rough. I would never turn you in, even if you helped me. I'd be like, no, innocent. Innocent. Good. And I'd hope you'd carry on for us. I would not turn you in. Later on, he left California and in 1988 got a degree in bat in Bachelor of Arts from the University of Arizona. Soon after, he even enrolled at the University of Daytona's law school, but never completed his studies. It was also around this time that John got his famous name, Dirty John. His friends would also call him Filthy John or just Filthy. John got these nicknames because of all of these crazy crimes he was doing. During his time at Daytona, His classmates discovered that he had been running various scams and cons. John had credit cards under fake names, and he had taken money for a roofing job that he had never completed. Along with this, John also always befriended different women, and it was around this time that he met his first wife. Dun, dun, dun! Dun, dun, dun! So, John's gonna marry and meet... Tanya Sells. As a failed law student, John met Tanya, a young nurse about to graduate from anesthesia school, and charmed her into thinking that he was intelligent and put to, like a put-together law student. While he had stopped attending the university, John was still in the area because he planned to marry Tanya. So in November of 1990, John and Tanya got married in a Catholic church without any of John's family. According to Tanya, John told her that his parents were addicts and he didn't want them to ruin his day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Their marriage lasted 10 years, during which the couple had two daughters, and Tanya put John through nursing school. Around the mid 2000s, Tanya started to catch on to John's lies and manipulations after John filing for divorce. She tracked and got in touch with John's mother, who told her about John's real name, real age, and drug charges, all of which John hid from her. Tanya also found a stash of surgical drugs at their house, which prompted her to report John to the police. Yes, girl, thank you. Finally, I hate it when they're like, oh, so then I like confronted him about it. Like, that's how you get murdered. Seriously. Just pass it on. In September 2000, they started investigating John. After that, John lost his job at the hospital in Dayton, Ohio, and he tried to start over in Indiana. Tanya's friends reported him to the board there as well, making him lose his job again. (laughs) They were like, no. Good for them, I know, right? Their reporting prompted a series of threatening and violent phone calls to Tanya. Over the next 14 years, John had several run-ins with, run-ins, like, with the law. 
He got into many more scams, cons, relationships, and much more money. So we're going to get into now about John meeting Deborah Newell. It was in 2014. John violated a restraining order against him and the court sent him to prison. So after serving his time, he got out in October. Two days later, he met 59-year-old Deborah Newell. Oh, gosh. A successful businesswoman and mother of four. Okay, wait. How old was he? He was 55. So, I can't. Okay. I guess the, not that's that not bad. too bad. Yeah. <laughs> Deborah's a cougar, but we support it. It's fine. Deborah had gone through strings of bad dates, relationships, and even marriages. And therefore, she was in like a vulnerable position for herself. When she met John on a dating site for people above their 50s. <laughs> What is it called? Like, Over the Hill? Over the Hill! Yes! <laughs> she Last was... ditch effort? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Please, I'm desperate. Sorry. That's not really mean. She was apprehensive, yet desperate for love. Right from their first date, Deborah could tell that John was different from her other dates. He was more attentive, a great listener, and had terrific stories to tell. Well, yeah, he really wants to know about your job, Deborah, and how much money you make, Deborah, and how he can scam you, Deborah. <laughs> when John tried to get too physical on their first date, Deborah refused and marked him off as just another failed match. However, John did come back with apologies, in other words, to kind of woo Deborah. Deborah, don't fall for it. Eventually, the two got into a steady relationship. Damn it, Deborah! John told Deborah many stories about his days in Iraq, the um, houses he owned in Palm Springs and Newport mm, Beach, mm, and many more convincing lies. Mm, yeah. As they spent more time with each other, John began staying the night at Deborah's penthouse, while Deborah was entirely smitten with Dirty John. Her children were not. The kids know. Because the kids aren't blinded by the honeymoon phase. Mm. So her daughters, Jacqueline and Tara, disproved from John from the very first meeting. As Deborah and John's relationship flourished, her relationships with her daughters worsened. In less than two months, Deborah and John decided to move in together, leasing the house on Balboa Island in Newport Beach. So... In Deborah's eyes, John was the greatest man ever. He'd bring her flowers and groceries. He'd go get her car washed, did all sorts of little things. Because of all of this, Deborah was quickly able to overlook some of John's kind of odd behaviors. It's because he's grooming you, sweetie. He For knows. <laughs> <laughs> For instance, he always wore a faded blue scrubs everywhere. How he had no clothes was because someone stole all of them. Mm. And he never had money because all of it was going to his daughters. Oh, okay. Deborah's daughters were not as quick to dismiss these weird things. Just before Thanksgiving, when Tara, Deborah's youngest daughter, discovered that John and Deborah had moved in together, she confronted her mom. Which led to an a very heated argument between Tara, John, and Deborah. The next month, Deborah and John decided to go get married in Vegas while on a business trip. No guests were invited. 
I just, I, Deborah, sweetie, have you never heard of like how abusers work? Like he's singling you yeah, out, so honey. Yeah, are so blind. I know, so... but uh, it just—your daughters don't like him. Your daughters really don't want nothing to do with him. And you're just like, ah, oh, no. I like him wearing his blue scrubs everywhere. Just Deborah, babe. We need to have a chat. Honey, that's gross. In March 2015, Deborah started learning the truth about John when her nephew Shad raised some concerns. He revealed to her about John's time spent in jail and that he wasn't an anesthesiologist. How did how did Chad know these? I I don't know. While Deborah acted like there were kind of no problems, she started digging through John's stuff at their house. She eventually found evidence of all of these heinous crimes he committed amongst like all of his papers. <laughs> <laughs> so John in all of his training yes. never learned to get rid of the evidence. Nope. Oh, Between 2005 and 2014, Dirty John had seduced dozens of women after meeting them on dating websites. After that, he proceeded to trick them out of their money and even terrorize them after. By 2014, John had restraining, order, restraining orders against him and three by three different women. And a further three women had requested restraining orders as well. So three women had restraining orders and three women were trying to get restraining orders against him. If that doesn't tell you. And she found all of this just laying in all of his crap in the office. That was stolen. (laughs) (laughs) Deborah also discovered evidence from other sites where dozens of women had warnings against John, citing him as a con artist and even a psychopath. During this time, John had gone for back surgery, which was going to last three weeks. Deborah took advantage of his absence to quietly move out of the house. Deborah, thank you. Mm, just wait. Oh, no. Over the next few months, John continued to try and reconcile with Deborah. He had a story and justification for each charge that Deborah found. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. Please. Mm. Eventually, no. John convinced Deborah, and the two moved in together into a new apartment. <laughs> no, Deborah. I mean, however, this time Deborah had her suspicions. Oh. By March 2016, Deborah had grown increasingly uncomfortable with her marriage with John, and her estrangement with her daughters. John's behavior had also gotten worse. Eventually, Deborah reached a breaking point. When John made violent threats against Jacqueline when he caught Deborah trying to meet with her daughter. My guy. Following that event, Deborah filed to annul the marriage. In response, John, who lived in Nevada, started terrorizing Deborah through constant calls and messages. She even requested a restraining order against him. But the court denied it because he was in another state. That doesn't mean he can't move. Are you I kidding? No. Like, I'm pretty sure restraining orders have to be like renewed or whatever. But still, like, ugh, this is what bugs me: is my ex stepdad that was just a piece of trash. Mm-hmm. He lived in Idaho, who would constantly come down and stalk my mom in Utah. And so yeah. now it makes me mad because I'm like, if she wanted a restraining order, she's gonna get one. But he was there all the freaking time. No. Mm-hmm. 
In June 2016, <clears throat> John had stolen Deborah's car from outside her workplace and attempted to light it on fire. As one does. So, yes, he was living in Nevada, but like you said with your mother and your ex-stepdad. It's called transportation. He, he got to California. In August 2016, Jacqueline saw John outside her apartment and subsequently warned Tara as well. On the 20th, Tara got back from work, got out of her car in the parking lot when John attacked with a knife. Oh my! In the scuffle that ensued, Tara was able to get a hold of the blade from John and proceeded to stab him 13 times, the last time in his eye. Yes! Tara! So, <laughs> Tara saved all of them. Thank goodness. Surprisingly, John did not die at that point. That's okay. He needs he needs jail time. <laughs> the paramedics were able to get his heart beating again. However, later on, Dirty John was declared brain dead. <sighs> he died on August 24th, 2016, after his sister took him off life support. Mm. I don't feel bad. <laughs> so while Dirty John's story may seem like unbelievably, unfortunately, like many women do go through similar and abusive, manipulative relationships throughout their life. Yes. The abuser's words and actions can make it hard to escape such relationships. I know it. I've seen it. I've been in it. I, I like I said, I've seen it. Like it's in front of my face all the time. That is why it is essential to seek help from those around you and professionals. Please, you guys, do not get caught by a dirty John. Yes. Please, guys. So we're gonna. I'm gonna tell you the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which pretty sure it can go for like manipulation too. Uh huh. One eight hundred seven nine nine safe. So twenty four hours, and you're in the U.S. Call them. Get out. It's not worth it. He's going to kill you. It's not worth it. Or your daughters. It. Or she is. It can Maybe go he'll both push ways. you out of the car. You just don't know. <sighs> we do this too much. We know how it goes. to be my Colorado story because oh I'm God. a retard and I read Colorado as Colorado but it's Colorado California and I hated it I was so mad but this is my California story now so on July 13th of 2011 in Colorado California the body of Rebecca Zahau was found hanging from the balcony of the Spreckles mansion What's the Spreckles mansion? It's just what the mansion was called. Oh, okay. Like, that's who owned it. I don't know. Spreckles. The Spreckles. <laughs> <laughs> so this was, this mansion belonged to her current boyfriend, Jonah Shacknai. And Jonah's brother, Adam, was currently staying at that mansion for a few weeks. And he was the one to go and find her. Adam claims that he saw her hanging and he got a small three foot, like, end table that I have a picture of. And then went and got a kitchen knife and cut her down and attempted to perform CPR on her. And then he called the police. When the police did arrive, they immediately called the sheriff's department because it was very suspicious there. So Rebecca was found with her feet tied and her hands bound tightly behind her back. 
She was naked with black paint covering her breasts. However, her hands and fingers were clean and her feet only had dirt on them. She had a long-sleeved blue shirt tied three times around her neck, then that was shoved into her mouth as like a gag. And Adam did say that he had to take it out to try and give her CPR, but it was in her mouth when he found her. There was a blood transfer on her thigh, which is not like a wound. It's just Mm -hmm. like she had blood on her thigh, but not from a wound, in case you don't know. That's what that is. Hmm. Um, The rope she was hanging from was tied and anchored to the bed in the room. Although when they went up to the bed, it had only moved seven inches. And I don't know, that's a little weird if you're just like jumping off a balcony to kill yourself. It's not only going to move seven inches, but okay. Hmm. Evidence found at the scene includes a pair of black gardening gloves, two knives in the bedroom, a garbage bag, paintbrushes, and a tube of black paint. There was also a cryptic message on the door saying, She saved him. Can you save her? in block lettering. <sighs> Buckle up, folks. Here we go. When the gloves got tested, it was determined that there was a mixture of two different DNA types on the right-hand glove, but there was too small an amount for anything to come out of that. One of the knives in the bedroom also had that undeterminable mixture of DNA, and that was also present on the balcony doorknob. The other knife had dried blood on the end of the handle, but they never wanted to test it. Wait, so couldn't they have, like, put all these, like, DNAs together? If they were too small and they were all, like, consistently the same DNA. I don't know how it works. I, I mean, this works. was in 2014, like, DNA's just gotten so much better, like, now. I mean, yeah, but... even. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Hmm. The paintbrushes found did have Re- Rebecca's fingerprints on them, but the only print found on the tube of paint was her thumbprint, and it was on the cap to open it, so not even, like, the actual tube. Police tested the knife outside that Adam claimed to use, but they only found his DNA on the knife, and of course it's not going to further anything, so that just kind of went up in smoke. Mm-hmm. Investigators did go to the other side of the mansion to a guest room and bathroom and found blood spots on the floor and clumps of her hair on the shower walls. So, so was it that? So was it her patio? Like, balcony that she jumped off of? Was, her the, yeah, the like room. her room. Okay. That she was in. Mm-hmm. Reportedly, Rebecca was on her period, and so since she was also found naked, investigators just concluded that the blood spots near the bathroom were just menstruation blood and did not decide to test it or question it further. There were no lacerations found on her body either, and even though there was that blood transfer on her, and the dried blood found on the knife, they didn't decide to test any of that to see if she had possibly been sexually assaulted. So they didn't do anything in their case, Jesus. No. They went and just took pictures of her. Just wait, it gets worse. Like, what the? It gets worse. On the balcony, there was a naked footprint and about half of a boot print. They decided to determine that the footprint was from Rebecca, but that the boot print must have just been from a responding officer. They didn't decide to compare the boot prints. They just said, eh, it's just from us. Don't worry about it. Well, Jesus, even then, like, you watch CSI, even in 2008, and they're wearing little booties on there, so they don't get their shoe prints in know. these cases. I don't know. I don't know. What retards. There were also boot prints downstairs that they just explained away as Adams when he went back in 
for the knife to cut her down, which is possible, but again, they never, like, compared blueprints to confirm or deny it, so. Also, for some reason, the medical examiner took 12 hours to come to the scene. Originally, he classified her death as unknown and possibly a homicide. He did discover tape residue on both of her calves and four blunt force injuries on her scalp and bruises on her arms from the rope being tied so tightly around her wrists. It was also discovered that Max, who was Jonah's son, had been in a fatal accident only two days prior. At the time, it wasn't fatal yet, like he was still fighting for his life, but it did turn fatal. So he had mysteriously fallen down like two flights of stairs while Jonah was reportedly at work and Max had to be taken to the hospital. At the same mansion? At the same mansion, yes. Okay. Um, so Rebecca was found on Tuesday and then these tests, some tests were ordered for Max on Wednesday that would later prove that he had no sign of life and so he did pass away, but little sus. Hmm. <clears throat> Even with all of this evidence and suspicion, the medical examiner and police into September of that year ruled that her death was a suicide. They came to this conclusion since no other DNA evidence besides Rebecca's was found at the scene. But like, bro, you didn't try to find any. So yeah. Seriously, I'm like shaking my head at this. (laughs) And this part gets me. If you look at the evidence report from the police, you will find that there are several inconsistencies between the crime scene photos and the evidence diagram made. For instance, the two knives found at the scene are swapped in the diagram, because one was like a larger chef's knife, and Mm -hmm. one was just like a littler steak knife. In the diagram, they swapped their places. Also, in crime scene photos, you can clearly see that there is a dryer sheet present in between the knives, which is commonly used to wipe fingerprints off of weapons, I guess. Mm -hmm. However, in the report, this sheet was never collected for evidence and not shown anywhere. So it's in the picture, but they didn't collect it at all? No. They just left it there? They just left it there, and they just decided that it didn't matter. Oh, this case is... Mm-hmm. What the hell? So because of everything, mm-hmm. the family of Rebecca immediately did not agree with the ruling and filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Adam Shackney. They did exhume her body, and hopefully I say this guy's name right. They hired Dr. Cyril Wecht, who is a forensic pathologist... Um, they hired him to redo her medical examination. When he was done, he ruled that her death was a homicide. He states that the cause of death was actually trauma to the base of her neck, which is common with strangulation. I'm just going to go off on a little tangent here, because here's what I think. Mm -hmm. With hanging, I know it's very common for, like, a bone to break. I can't Mm -hmm. remember the exact one, but I know that's what breaks. But he didn't say anything about her bone breaking. He just said there was, like, trauma. And so unless she very slowly hung herself, I don't think there would just be trauma. I think she would have broken a bone. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, usually, like, and I've had someone hang themselves and pass away from it. Like, an actual suicide. Mm-hmm. And they they did, like, they didn't break their their neck, but they broke something mm-hmm. that, I mean, they didn't, they got to him, but he had passed away in yeah. the hospital from his injuries. But I do know it's pretty common, like, 
especially where it's from a balcony, like, when you drop that far, you're gonna break your neck. Yeah. You're gonna have something broken in your nothing, neck. Nothing, like, he didn't report any fractures, no, nothing broken, just, like, trauma at the base of her neck. So would that then rule that she had been suffocated he first? He said, he said strangulation. The other doctor said, eh, just a hanging. This guy said it was strangulation. And then he said that whoever killed her then hung her off the balcony to make it appear as a suicide. Right. He also backed this up by saying that the four injuries on her scalp were from a small blunt object, while the police said that it must have just been from the railing, like that she somehow hit on her way down. I don't mm-hmm. know. But he said that it's not possible. It had to have been small blunt objects. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So, it kind of took a while for the trial to take place, but in April of 2018, the civil trial against Adam finally started. At this trial, a neighbor named Marsha Allison said that she heard a 20-year-old woman crying, help me, help me, around 11.40 p.m. the night Rebecca died. And I have a little clip of her testimony. She went, ah, ah, help, help. I'd say she's probably late 20s, early 30s. Because after you said, well, you know, there's a difference in every age group when they holler. And I'd say it was around in that age, that age group. I'm not good at figuring out voices, but she wasn't, it wasn't a young girl. It was an older, like a woman, more of an adult scream. So that was actually an interview with police. And as you can hear her saying... Mm-hmm. She says that they they were kind of like, well, you can't really tell how old someone is from the screen. And like she says, you kind of can a little bit, you know. Yeah. She claims that she had three separate interviews with police. And every single time they told her that she was wrong, either she couldn't possibly have heard anything from that house. Or like they just said she couldn't know that it was a woman versus a teenager, all that crap. Marsha did live a house down, but she claims that the windows in her house were open and the windows in the mansion were open when police arrived. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, she could have heard something. (laughs) Yeah. So, also, during this trial, a handwriting expert was hired to compare the writing on the door between Rebecca's and Adam's. And this door, prosecutors, prosecutors called the prep room because it was discovered through evidence that the rope that Rebecca was found in had been cut and tied in that room. And this is kind of, it's hard to explain, but it's like, the bed, mm-hmm. if you were to sit up in your bed, you would see the balcony. Okay. And then, I can't remember which side it's on from the video, but it's on the side, there's a door to go out into the hallway, and it's that, or into a little bathroom, and it's that door that has the message on it. Okay. Um, so this handwriting expert did show that the writing on the door was more alike to Adam than Rebecca's handwriting. And of course, I'm going to have a picture of the handwriting on the blog. So after six weeks of deliberation and trial, the jury did rule in favor of the family and awarded them $5.2 million in damages. Adam did immediately appeal, but before the judge named Catherine Bacal could even make a rule on the appeal, the family of Rebecca agreed on a settlement. This judge did, however, state on record that there was enough evidence to put Adam responsible for Rebecca's death. However, at this point, legally, Rebecca's death is still a suicide because that was a civil case, not really like a 
legal mm-hmm. thing. So, do they say where Adam was when all this happened? He claims that he was just out for the night, I think, or at work. I can't remember exactly. And then he came home okay. and found her. In the I, thought, I thought Jonah found her. No, Adam found her. Jonah was just the one. Jonah's that, like, just her boyfriend that owns the house. That's like, he's no other importance to the story besides he was her boyfriend. He's the brother of this guy. And owns the Jonah's house. Jonah's the boyfriend? Mm-hmm. And he's the dad of Max that died. So 2018 was election year for the sheriff. And at this time, Sheriff Gore claimed that if he got re-elected, he would reopen Rebecca's case because of the civil lawsuit against Adam. I don't know if it's necessarily because of this, if it helped, but he did, however, win, and he did open up the investigation again. This re-examination lasted from June to November and just was a complete joke, honestly. I... (laughs) So, they decided that they were not going to retest any of the DNA... That includes the undetermined DNA found on the gloves, even with all of our advancements in technology now. They also tried to disprove that Rebecca was killed by showing a woman tying the bonds that Rebecca was found in by herself. Mm -hmm. This ultimately failed, though, because an expert later points out that the sheriff's example shows the binding ending with the knot at the bottom of the tie near her wrist, mm-hmm. where the photos from the crime scene show that the knot is at the top of her binding, because I have a picture okay. of that, too. Uh-huh. They still did not elect to test the blood found near the bathroom or the knife with the blood on it. They also had a handwriting expert report that you cannot analyze block lettering and handwriting, because apparently everyone writes the same when they write in caps. I don't know. What? So... They said there was no way to determine who wrote the message on the door. The police also got phone records from Jonah, Rebecca, and a woman named Nina Romano, who was the twin sister to Jonah's ex-wife. But they did not get Adam's phone records. With these, they found the notes app on Rebecca's phone and kind of pick and chose which parts to release to the public to make her mental health seem more drastically fragile. They played clips like... Her saying that her life is meaningless now and that she just is all alone. But here, I'm going to play the full clip of her notes that's narrated by somebody. No amount of money is worth what I am going through. It is my own fault. I have allowed myself to become completely cut off from my own life. My life does not exist. I have no one to talk to, and I must somehow find the strength from within to overcome the daily doubts. Sorry, and battle I face every day. I must find the patience to see through this stage, to be calm and forgiving when there are enemies trying to destroy me, to not let anger or bitterness seep into my heart, lest I become like one of them. My reward must be his love, whatever that dose may be, remembering the rare sweet times that we get to share. While it's clearly like kind of a cry for help and she's obviously struggling, right? she's mentioning several times that she wants to overcome, that she must find the strength. And so to me, someone who's going to fight is not mm-hmm. going to plan out this deliberate suicide where she right. writes this weird note, ties yeah. herself off up in a bathroom, and then like walks over and jumps off the balcony. Like, 
I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me that, at all. Yeah. So after their case, the sheriff department decide to stand by their initial finding of suicide because they literally did nothing Again. except for say, this is what we said the first time and we're still going to side with it. So cool. Ooh, annoys me. Once the family heard of this, they started another lawsuit against the sheriff's department, citing that they did not get phone records from Adam, and also that they had insufficient evidence to correctly decide anything. The police claimed that since Rebecca's death was still a suicide, any evidence they had was confidential and they did not have to release it to the public. Hmm. So thankfully, this year we got, we got a break. In March of 2021, a superior court judge set an October hearing date for the family. It was discovered that Adam's defense team was giving more case files and evidence than the prosecuting team was at the time of the first civil case. I don't know how much you guys know about, like, law stuff, but it is required that the lawyers get the same of everything. Mm -hmm. So that's already a no-no. <laughs> Um, it is also reported that in October they will be looking at the message on the door again. Since it's been discussed that Rebecca was a painter, and many people that knew her said that she would not have written the message as sloppily as it was, but this does have high potential to be circumstantial evidence just because of all the stuff around the message itself. So, that's all on there. She is still considered a suicide, but... Maybe in October it'll change. Let's hope. Because it's Dang. not a suicide. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. That is so crazy. Oh, and Adam, he's so gross. I couldn't even put it... I couldn't even put it into words. He was in interviews saying that the family was doing all this just for the money. And just so that they didn't have to look at people and say, like, Hey, my daughter killed herself. And I'm like, that's not it. Yeah, um, let's cancel that trip. Yeah. Awesome stories, though. Pretty wild. Guys, don't forget to go on our blog to find photos and our sources for today. Other than that, we'll see you all next week. Stay smart, stay safe, and stay twisted. Stay twisted.